Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to cover one of the less pleasant parts of pediatrics, child maltreatment. Most exams don't go too far down the road when it comes to managing cases of abuse and neglect, partly because there's some variation from state to state in the laws, and most tests are written to be used nationwide. But you do need to know the basics about risk factors, recognition, and initial evaluation. To help me make this episode, I sat down with Dr. Angela Rabbit, the Program Director of the Child Abuse Pediatrics Fellowship at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. She's been doing this for a long time and has always been an excellent resource for my colleagues and me when these cases end up in the hospital, and it was great to get the chance to interview her. As a warning, there are some small technical hiccups and ups and downs with the audio quality. I hope you can forgive me, it was my first time using my portable recorder. With that out of the way, let's get into the interview. Dr. Rabbit, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. To start things off, I wanted to ask, how did you get started in child advocacy? Well, I had always had an interest in pediatrics. And so when I was in my pediatrics rotations through medical school, and then eventually as I entered into my residency, especially in the emergency department, I would tend to see a lot of uh, the abuse cases. And I'm not sure why that is, just if I just happen to pick them up or right. Maybe I, everyone else is avoiding them. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know they were always kind of interesting to me. And then I started reading more about adverse childhood experiences and the effects of trauma on uh, children and health even into adulthood. And uh, that really got my attention. I think that one thing we can really do to improve the health and well-being of our communities is to address uh, the environment in which the child is raised. And that kind of leads me into what's the one thing that you would want every pediatrician to know about dealing with child advocacy kind of cases? So I think I think the most important thing to remember is that advocacy is part of a pediatrician's job, no matter what specialty you're in, general pediatrics or subspecializing, we all play a role in advocacy. And that can look like a lot of different things. Uh, it can be anywhere from being able to recognize child maltreatment and know how to respond appropriately to helping parents learn more about safe environments for their children and communities and helping them, uh, supporting them when they're trying to create safe environments for their kids. Educating communities and legislators on advocacy issues and the effects of violence on children and then supporting community programs. What are some of those red flags and suspicious things for recognizing the abuse and neglect kind of cases? When we talk about red flags, I think it's really important to have a little caveat in the beginning, right? Because red flags are really important in terms of knowing which demographics to target for prevention. But when you have a child and family in front of you, and with potential concerns for abuse, demographics don't really matter because any child, any demographic of child can be a victim of maltreatment. When we start kind of painting a picture of what we think maltreatment looks like, then we run the risk of overcalling abuse in families that look a certain way or undercalling abuse in families that don't fit that demographic that we have in our minds. So there's a little caveat there. Sure. But if you look at the research, some of the major risk factors Probably the biggest one uh, is poverty. Poverty can affect families negatively in a lot of ways and, and increases the risk for maltreatment. Uh, mental health and substance abuse in caregivers is another red flag or risk factor. And violence in the home. Children who are in homes that experience violence 
are about twice as likely to be neglected and abused. Parents that seem to have really unrealistic expectations of a child. We frequently have cases where parents will say, they're talking about a two-month-old baby. She's just spoiled. She cries whenever we we pick her up. And we all know that a two-month-old developmentally is not capable of, of of that kind of manipulation. I don't think we put my son down for two months. Right. <laughs> right. But not every parent knows that. Uh, and so then they start attributing negative temperaments to the child. Uh, also potty training. That's kind of a dangerous time for a child as well. Some parents expect that their, their child is going to be potty trained by two years of age or even one year. And we know that uh, accidents are normal even up to six years of age. Right. Parents who don't understand proper forms of discipline, a lot of the families that we encounter have experienced abuse in their childhood, and and that's how they feel they should be disciplining their children. So educating families that physical forms of discipline are not shown to be any more effective. And then infants who are really fussy, that's a risk factor as well. Anyone who has babies can kind of relate to this, but they start off sleeping a lot. Around two months of age, they kind of go through a phase where they cry a lot. Some babies more than others, but all go through that phase to some degree. Uh, And it can be really challenging for parents. The baby can cry for even normal babies up to five hours a day. Sometimes there's nothing a parent can do to make that crying better. I've actually been kind of surprised by how uncommon it is for parents to know that. Because all the prenatal classes that we did, they mentioned the six to eight week period, Mm -hmm. your kid's going to be angry for no good reason. You just do what you can. Like you said, a lot of parents have unrealistic expectations or just aren't prepared for that kind of period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, they're expecting to have the Gerber baby and then the reality doesn't meet the expectations. And so sometimes the parent has a lot of guilt because they think it's their fault. They think the baby doesn't like them. Uh, or they're not expecting it, they just don't know what to do. So uh, fussy babies, that, especially if there are other risk factors for abuse, those babies could be at risk for maltreatment. Any suggestions for separating those accidental versus non-accidental kind of injuries that we might see? Yeah, so when we look at injuries and try to decide if it's abusive versus accidental, there are a few things we look at. Uh, one is the developmental age of the child. Babies who are non-mobile, meaning they're not pulling to stand and cruising along furniture or walls. It's very, very unusual for them to have bruises and fractures. Less than 1%. My wife worked in Child Protective Services for a long time, and they taught everybody if they're not cruising, they shouldn't be bruising. Exactly. Yep. If they don't cruise, they shouldn't be bruising. (laughs) Um, So that's one thing. Anytime you see bruising or intraoral injuries or fractures in a very young non-mobile infant, you should be thinking about abuse as one of the first things. Uh, and those kids need it, an evaluation. Our medical director, Dr. Sheets, did a study a few years ago on sentinel injuries. Sentinel injuries are mild, abusive injuries in non-mobile infants that often go unrecognized. When we looked at our population of abused infants, Almost 30% of them had had a sentinel injury at some point, uh, a minor injury, and 40% of those were seen by providers, but that wasn't responded to. So if you can recognize those sentinel injuries as concerning and respond appropriately, then escalation of the abuse could be prevented. So that's one thing, it's developmental age. We also look at the location of injuries. Kids who can move around, can run, fall, 
they will frequently have bruises, but they're usually over bony prominences, the knees, shins, forehead, chin. If you're seeing bruises in protected areas, like the buttocks, the genitals, inner thighs, the ears, those areas are uh, less likely to be injured accidentally. So it doesn't necessarily mean that all injuries in those areas are abusive, but you might want to ask more questions. Making sure the story makes sense for what happened. Right, yeah. Like a fall out of bed, if you're seeing bruising on, on one plane of the body and on the forehead, that kind of would make sense. But if you're seeing bruises to both cheeks and to the buttocks, that doesn't make sense with a single fall. And then, uh, finally, the other thing we look at frequently is patterned injuries. Some patterns we commonly see would be looped cord injuries from flexible objects that's looped on itself and then used to strike the child. Linear bruises, uh, bite marks. I remember when I took my board exam, there were the one definite child advocacy kind of question was the mother saying this kid had a rash and it was clearly a handprint on the cheek. Yeah, handprints and grab marks are two that really should be worried about, but sometimes those can be confusing. A lot of people look at those and think that they're rashes mm-hmm. because they can have a more petechial look to them. Sure. And the bruises tend to be in the outline of the hand, not under the fingers, mm-hmm. because the bruising occurs in areas of greatest tissue deformation. So the outline of the hand or kind of linear, uh, curvilinear, squiggly bruises, petechial, those are grab marks or scar marks. What kind of things are appropriate for just a general diagnostic workup once you're fairly certain that you've got a case of child maltreatment? It depends on the type of maltreatment. Sure. But in general, for physical abuse, it depends on the age of the child. In any infant less than six months of age, when there are significant concerns for abuse, we will do a head CT. And uh, sometimes we get some pushback because that's a lot of radiation for the child. But there's actually a a fairly high rate of occult head injuries in very young infants. Uh, The neuro exam is, of course, screening for neuro injury in children of that age. But because of the fairly high rate of occult injuries that we find when abuse is a concern, part of national recommendations is to get that head CT in that age group. Any child less than two years of age with concerns for abuse should have a skeletal survey. Those are x-rays of the whole body, all of the bones with close-ups of the joints. There is a fairly high rate of occult fractures in really young infants too, the really young children. And again, that's because they're not very good at telling us when um, something is hurt and we're not often getting, often we're not getting the full story from the caregivers. In any child less than five years of age, we also do screening for occult belly injury. So AST, ANT, anemase, and lipase. In an accidentally injured child, so a belly injury, you're usually going to have a history for that, and they're usually coming in pretty quickly yeah. after that occurs. So you usually do see symptoms in those kids. But in the abuse population, they're sometimes not coming in right away. So a lot of those acute symptoms have passed, and uh, we're not always getting a good history. So we do those tests. Mm-hmm. And then if those are positive, we would go on with a CT or BF. Um, we also do a drug screens in children less than five years of age. We've been finding occult illicit drug exposure in about 11% of abuse cases. And then for certain types of abuse, if we have fractures, we'll sometimes do an evaluation for bone disease or abnormalities. We look for bleeding disorders if there's a lot of bruising or bleeding, just to make sure we're not missing a medical condition. Right. The kid who 
is going to bleed if you hold their hand versus the one bruises from getting actual injury. Right. And then uh, if there's concern for head injury, we ask for an ophthalmology consult looking for retinal hemorrhages, bleeding in the back of the eye that often goes along, abusive head trauma, and an MRI of the head and spine. So a lot depends on what you're seeing, but we've got general guidelines for the different age groups. Yeah. And then for sexual abuse, the sexual assault exam has to be done by, by a specialist. Of course. So those providers can be found in emergency departments mm-hmm. or child advocacy centers. And you can always call your local child advocacy center or child abuse specialist to figure out where to send that child. Sure. The thing to remember about sexual abuse evaluations is there's a time frame in which it has to be done. We can do prophylaxis against sexually transmitted infections if we see the child within 72 hours Mm -hmm. of the assault, and pregnancy prevention if we see them within about five days. So it's important to get the same as soon as possible. The mention that you made of the occult uh, illicit substances actually leads me into the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is always hard for me as a hospitalist, is some of the, the tricky, is this a referral kind of cases, ingestions in young children. So illicit substance versus something that they shouldn't have, but it's legal, like alcohol versus prescription medications. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of general framework for when those cases are something that should be referred to protective services versus things that are a warning for parents? And- Anytime the child ingests an illicit substance, that is neglect and really should be reported to Child Protective Services and law enforcement. We know there is some sort of exposure mm-hmm. in the child's environment, and that alone places them at higher risk for neglect and abuse. So if it's an illicit substance, definitely it should be reported to both CPS and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. For the non-illicit substances, it really depends on the case, and the response should be tailored based on the number of times they've had an ingestion, any other injuries or concerns for supervision, like neglected supervision. So those cases may or may not get reported. The appropriate first step might just be education. Absolutely. And similar with prescription medications to the non-illicit substances, if there's a pattern, it's more concerning. If there's no pattern, it's more likely to be one where you educate. Yes. How about the complex patients that keep getting admitted, but they do better when you just get them on the treatment plan they're supposed to be doing at home, and you don't actually have to escalate much? Yeah, so you're asking about so, for example, this, right, the special needs kind of patient who comes to the hospital, and all you really do is put them on their home care regimen, and there you look great. Right, and so there's concern that the parents are not following right. that at home the way they should be, whether they're not capable of or intentionally not, or yeah. neglect can be tricky in terms of what at what point was the threshold for reporting. The statute in Wisconsin for neglect is any time there's a failure or an inability on the part of the caregiver to provide necessary care, and that failure or inability places that child at risk for serious harm. So you have to think about what attempts have been made to try to help the family in the past, what sort of resources are available to them, and what is the risk of harm to that child in the moment if the treatment plan isn't followed. So the first step in those cases, I think, would be to, if you have them available, get a social worker involved to really ask more questions about the needs of the family. And then what sort of resources can you provide or your institution provide that might help the family 
become more compliant with the treatment plan. Right, because correct me if I'm wrong, but there's an there's the for reasons of poverty exception to anything right. neglect related. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point because it's you can't really, as a medical provider, assess whether the failure to provide care is because of poverty. Right. It might be they may not bring, be bringing them to appointments because they don't have transportation or they can't afford the bus fare or the cab fare, or it might be that they're spending their money on drugs instead of meeting the needs of the child. So sometimes the only way to tease that out is to call Child Protective Services to do a bit of family assessment and see how their resources are being allocated. But uh, the first step, as I said, would be to, to try to do what we can to help the family. And so getting them involved with special needs might be a way to do that. They're really good at helping coordinate services for complex kids, having in-home health care help the family, get it, getting them those resources might be all that they need. If you're doing those things and it's not working, especially if you have a really high-risk child, then you might have to think about making a report sure. to CPS. And for people listening who are outside of the Children's Hospital Wisconsin system, Special needs is a program that we have here for complex medical patients that do exactly what Dr. Rabbit said. They help coordinate care. They know these kids really well. They know what they're like when they're at their best, and they know what their parents are capable of so that they know what they can do at home, which is usually a lot more than the average parent. Right. And it's important to understand, too, that calling Child Protective Services isn't necessarily a punitive thing, uh, and I know it's hard for families to not see it that way. But sometimes it's the only way in, in some locations to really figure out what the family needs and get the resources that they need so they can care for the child right. appropriately. CPS is there to protect the kids, and if at all possible, they want the kids to stay in the house with the resources that they need to be safe and healthy with their family. Yes. In my experience, the thing that they try to do above all is keep families together. The last one that I have to run by you is, when is it reportable when a family is refusing the recommended treatment for their child? Yeah, and those are really complicated cases as well, uh, because generally parents do have the right to make medical decisions. But there have been cases where, where we, we can have considered those types of cases neglect and have made reports. Typically, our first recommendation would be to get an ethics consult, if you have that available sure. in your institution. And then also to talk to risk management, because if you're going to try to go above the parents to get care for the child uh, that you believe is necessary, you really kind of need the institution to back you on that. And that was the end of our interview. We did say a nice, pleasant goodbye, but the audio quality was really beyond salvageable. Again, I'm sorry for that part. Hopefully the content made up for it. That covers some of the basics on child maltreatment. For take-home points, remember that poverty, parental substance abuse, or mental health problems and a history of abuse in the family are some of the major risk factors for abuse and neglect, but any child from any family can be affected. Watch out for patterned injuries, things like looped cord, linear, or handprint patterns, and inconsistencies between the explanation and the injuries that you're seeing. When you're suspicious for maltreatment, a CT of the head is appropriate for infants, especially younger ones, and you should get a skeletal survey to look for signs of hidden or healing fractures. Finally, never be afraid to contact your child advocacy team or to make a referral to Child Protective Services. 
CPS gets a bad reputation, but they really do want to do everything that they can to get families the support they need to raise their children safely, and taking kids into custody is an absolute last resort. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Dr. Angela Rabbit for the interview. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. And also let me know if you like the interview format. I promise I'll do a better job with the audio quality next time, and there are a lot of other great specialists and primary care doctors connected with Children's Hospital that I can get in touch with and try to bring into the podcast. You can send any feedback you have to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.